Brothers and sisters, if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to our text, which comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verses 18 to 29. Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, to the churches. Thus far is a reading of God's holy word. Now, brothers and sisters, as the book of Revelation would be traveling from church to church, it would go from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum and ultimately then southeast to Thyatira. Now, all of you, even if you don't immediately recognize it, have heard of Thyatira. Because I know for certain that you guys here are familiar with Lydia, the seller of purple goods from Acts 16. And if you recall in Acts 16, we're told that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel that Paul proclaimed and that her and her family were baptized that day. That event occurred, we're told, in Thyatira. Now, we don't know for certain though how the church in Thyatira began, but it could have began at that time in Acts chapter 16, as Paul was there preaching outside of the synagogue. And if that's the case, then by the year 95 AD, the church in Thyatira has now been established for some time. But unlike those other cities that we've read about already, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, which were large and popular and noteworthy, Thyatira is none of these. 
It is none of these. This letter written to Thyatira, though, is the largest of all of the letters. And yet it's written to the least known church. Historically speaking, we know the absolute least about Thyatira. Yet what we do know about Thyatira is that it was established as a military post. It was a military outpost. And in the year 193 BC, the Romans took it over. And it was an attractive military outpost for the Romans because it allowed them to block the road from their capital city to stop anyone who would be trying to come to it. But now, in the year 95 AD, it is a weak city that was open to attack from every side as it sat in the middle of a valley. Now Thyatira was only known really as a, as a manufacturing city, as a city of commerce, as a, a city of the trades. But in fact, there were all different trades in Thyatira and each of these trades were dominated by what was called a, a trade guild or we might consider them trade unions today. And so you would have you know, wool workers who had a trade guild. You would have linen workers who had a, a trade guild. Uh, you would have uh, you know, all these different steel workers who had a trade guild. Every trade had a trade guild. And each of these guilds were associated, though, with guardian pagan deities that they would worship. And herein lied the problem for the church in Thyatira. These trade guilds were intermingled with pagan religion. Each guild would hold festivals to their deity and all who were part of that guild were expected to attend. And to not attend was to render a significant blows to one's ability to provide for one's family because you could lose your job. Which would ultimately mean what? It would mean economic disaster for the Christians living in the city who could lose the only real way to make a living. And so it is to these circumstances that Christ has John right to the church in Thyatira to address with both comforting reassurances but also sharp rebuke. And we will see a mixture of the two in our first point this morning which is Christ's self-designation. Please then look with me at verse 18. In verse 18 we read then, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus begins by reminding the church that it is the only Son of God who speaks these words to them in contrast to the deaf, the mute, and the dumb gods of the pagans. You see, at this time, a local guild deity named Apollo Tyrimnaeus, as well as the divine emperor, were both considered sons of the god Zeus. And it was expected that they would render worship to these people as divine. Jesus here then in His self-designation declares Himself to the people as the only true Son of God. And as Son, it was to Him that they were to direct adoration towards. No other gods of the pagans. As the Son of God is a jealous God for the glory of God. In Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8 we read, I am the Lord That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. As one author explains, God's jealousy is the fervent energy of His holiness. We ought to think of it it as God's zeal for His name. And so this isn't a a human jealousy that desires what someone else has or, or wants that which belongs to someone else that leads one to sin. 
But rather, when we consider God's jealousy, His jealousy is a a righteous zeal for the glory, honor, and worship of God who alone is deserving of it and who alone has right and claim to it. And so in introducing Himself as the Son of God, what Christ is also doing is pointing out the vanity in worshiping anything other than the one true God. It's futile, it's foolish, because at the end of the day, what are idols? Idols are nothing. How foolish it was for all of those living in Asia Minor to worship the emperor and other heathen gods as divine. It was the psalmist who declares in Psalm 89, verse 6, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? I mean, how sad is it to picture at these trade guild festivals, people crying out, praying to their gods who cannot help, to cry out to carved images or statues that will in time be brought to ruin, to cry out to Roman Caesars who today no longer even exist. And it was these worthless, weak, feeble men and things that people were praising and worshipping as God when ultimately their ruin was a demonstration of the one true God's power and these false gods' impotence. Even today, we might ask along with the psalmist, who can be compared to the Lord? Can the God of Islam, of Judaism, or of the Jehovah's Witnesses, can they answer the people's cries? Can they provide for their followers? Can they deliver them from distress? And the answer is categorically, no. Why? Because their gods do not exist. They are nothing. They are not deity at all. And how sad it will be then on that great day when the trumpet blasts and Christ returns because the people of all these false religions on the earth will look up to the sky and cry out to their gods, but who will save them from the wrath to come? What they will find out is that their cries will go unanswered. And so to tell the people in Thyatira that it is the Son of God who speaks to them is to tell them to continue to trust in Him. To trust solely in the One who has the power and the ability to provide for them beyond what they could ever imagine. It's also a call to them to remember His name. To remember that He alone is God and that the heavens are His and the earth also. For He rules the ragings of the sea and stills the rising waves from His strong and mighty hand. But also... They not only are to trust in Him because He is infinite and omnipotent, but because He is their God and they are His people. It is a reminder that they are bound to Him by covenant. That in the new covenant, we are exclusively His. And Christ exclusively ours. And we are not to allow anything to interrupt that relationship no matter the cost. Even though for those living in Thyatira, the cost was great. And to those who thought that they could balance both, serving God and participating in idolatry and get away with it, Jesus likewise in this text reminds them that the Son of God has eyes like a flame of fire. The idea here that Christ is communicating to them is that He sees into their hearts and into their minds. There is no place of escape, no cover of the night that can shade the eyes of God from seeing you. When people today want to do something nefarious, what do they do? They, they go to dark alleys, dark corners. They hide behind walls and doors, behind the privacy of their computer. But there is no hiding from God. Children, you must know this. There is no place you can go and hide your sin from God. 
Although you may get something past your parents, you will never get one past omniscient God. And for every Christian here, the same goes for you. And ultimately, I ask, why would you want to do anything that would be hid from the eyes of the Lord? Doesn't that already tell you that you should not be doing it? And if you acknowledge Him to be your God and your Maker and your Redeemer, if you acknowledge Him as the Bridegroom and you His Bride, why would you ever do anything that goes against Him? But this is exactly what you do. Every time you sin, you are committing spiritual adultery and you are engaging in idolatry against the one whom you claim to love. And so Christ gives this self-designation as a warning to them, but not only to them, to us as well. That He sees not only our reaction, but He sees your every thought behind every action, as well as the disposition of your heart behind every action. You see, brothers and sisters, Christ is the great physician who needs no scalpel to look behind you, to look what's inside of you, for He knows what's inside of every one of you perfectly who sits here today. But also, Christ likewise comforts the church by describing Himself as the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. Here He declares Himself to be the God as we looked at in chapter 1 and verse 15, who hates sin and who will trample upon the wicked as metals are used to fashion weapons. And it will be those weapons that He will use to destroy all unrighteousness and punish sinners for their rebellion and unbelief after having been given ample time and opportunity to repent and to believe. And some in the church in Thyatira themselves perhaps belong to the bronze trade. And so they would understand this right away. They could picture this in their minds. Recall how the bronze would look when placed upon the fire. And how reassuring it would be for them to know that the wicked would not win, but that the God who is by their side will take vengeance on all who have afflicted them unrighteously. And then, taking this description as a whole, not just Christ is Son of God, and the one who has eyes like a flame of fire or feet like burnished bronze. But taking this description as a whole, what Christ may also be alluding to here is back to Daniel chapter 3. And in particular, the event that surrounded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were placed in that fiery furnace. If you remember, why were the men placed there? They were placed there for not worshipping the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. And as they were put in there, bound and not consumed, Nebuchadnezzar is perplexed and wonders why. And he, he turns to his counselor. And his counselor says to him, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And so Christ, by alluding to this text, encourages the church in Thyatira letting them know that He who writes to them in the midst of their own struggles is the one who protected these men in the midst of the fire. And He likewise is the God who will protect His church and deliver them spiritually from their own persecution and trials for remaining faithful to God and not worshipping the pagan deities that they were being pressured into acknowledging. But brothers and sisters, here also lies a church for the, a lesson for the church excuse me, as well. 
too often, if we're honest with ourselves, we must admit that we give in to difficult circumstances because we are oftentimes afraid to suffer loss. Right? We do the wrong thing at work or school or with our friends or at home because we're afraid that we might miss out on something. But what we see, not only here, but throughout all of Scripture, in this text and in Daniel 3, is that whenever the choice must be made between a physical loss or a spiritual loss, we always must take the physical loss. Right? There is no debate. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was bow down and worship the image or die. They chose death. For the saints in Thyatira, it was attend these pagan trade uh, guild festivals so that they might maintain a living or live in abject poverty. And what were they to choose? It was poverty. And all of these saints, in the midst of choosing the physical loss, though, continued to entrust themselves to the Lord. They continued to believe that God would provide. This is exactly what we see in the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 17. This is what they say to the king. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What boldness! What boldness! Do any of us have that kind of boldness within us today? If the choice was lose your job or impugn the name of Christ, what would you choose? If it was jail or sin against God, what would you choose? If it was go along with mom, dad, family member or friend to make them happy, even if it meant sinning against God, would you do it to just keep the peace or would you choose Christ? It shouldn't be a hard choice for us. Because we know, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, like the saints in Thyatira, we know the God that we serve and we know how He tells us to serve Him. We know what He is capable of and we know that just as He promises the church in Thyatira, that He likewise promises us that He will provide for His people all that we need, all that is necessary in this life, just as He has done for every one of us so far here today. And so, brothers and sisters, the next time that we find ourselves in a situation where a choice like this has to be made, physical loss or spiritual loss, remember who you're in covenant with. Remember who the God is that you serve. Remember His promises. Remember what His Word says to us. And do not give in to those temptations that the world offers, but rather let us remain faithful to Christ and hold fast to His Word. With that being said, we move to point number two, which is Christ confronts Thyatira. He starts by saying in verse 19, I know your works, your love, and faith and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Don't we see here the very opposite going on to what happened in Ephesus? Remember in Ephesus, the saints are rebuked for leaving their first love, and they're called to go back to doing the works that they did at first. But here in Thyatira, what do we see? Their latter works exceed their former works. Do we see, brothers and sisters, that that is how the Christian life ought to be? 
Right? That is how the Christian life ought to be. A vibrant Christian life is one that is manifested by good works. This is what we see throughout all of Scripture. The Christian is constantly being called to good works. Let me qualify though. What are good works? That which God says are good works, that He calls us to do in His Word, not whatever we want to call good works. And this is what Paul then tells Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We need to see, brothers and sisters, that our works are to be growing and flourishing as we mature in the faith, not diminishing. A sign that you're growing in knowledge and faith and love is that you're growing in good works. And I want us to also see then here, in verse 19, how these Christian virtues go hand in hand. The greater one's love grows for God and neighbor, the greater their service will be to their neighbor. The greater one's faith grows in the Lord, the greater their ability to persevere in the face of temptation and persecution becomes. But what we need to see is that these Christian virtues go hand in hand. They work together. You can't say, I'm growing in love, but feel no burden for the Christian sitting beside you. Right? You can't say, my, my faith in the Lord has never been stronger but buckle and compromise at the first sign of distress. Right? But although the church in Thyatira has been commended for much, for their love, faith, service, patience, what do we see is glaringly absent from this list of commendations? How about holiness? How about holiness? There is no commendation to the church for their purity. But instead, what are they doing? They, they suffer from the same problem that the church in Pergamum did. Right? They are suffering from those within the church who are teaching heretical doctrine and practicing gross immorality. In Pergamum, it was the Nicolaitans. In Thyatira, it's someone who was called Jezebel. Now, I want us to understand that we aren't to uh, take the name literally as if this person's name is Jezebel. But rather, what we are to understand is that what this person is doing in Thyatira are the same things that Jezebel did, which is why Christ gives to her the name Jezebel. And so in order to understand what he is trying to communicate by that, we have to ask, who is Jezebel? Right? Who is the, who is the Jezebel being referenced? And for that, we have to go back to the 9th century B.C. Right? Jezebel was the wife of the king of Israel, who was Ahab at that time. And we're told that Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than every other king that came before him. And in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25, we're told that it was Jezebel who incited him to it. It was Jezebel who incited King Ahab and the Israelites to go after idols and to worship Baal. It was Jezebel who incited them to compromise and to fornicate with idols. And so you see, this is, this is the comparison that's being drawn out to this woman in Thyatira. Right? This prophetess in Thyatira was guilty of doing these same things. Look at verse 20. 
But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Right? This Jezebel was teaching the saints in Thyatira that it was okay to participate in these trade guild festivals. And the saints of Thyatira now are being rebuked by Christ for not stamping this out, for not putting this teaching out of the church and for allowing it to fester and to continue to, to bubble up. But I'm sure as we sit here today, we can all see how she could amass a following by that teaching, can we not? Right? Because that teaching tickles the ears of a lot of people who sit in the pews of churches, doesn't it? Right? That teaching that you in fact don't have to die to the world to be a Christian. That, that teaching that you don't have to forsake sin if you're a believer. That, that teaching that you can compromise in the Christian life. Uh, that you don't have to suffer and be persecuted for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. Right? That's a teaching that a lot of people who sit in pews like and they want to hear. That's a teaching that we see going on today, don't we? In all different forms. Or we could say there are a lot of Jezebels in churches teaching today, can we not? Right? Teaching that, that Christ wants you to, to be, uh, you know, amass great riches and wealth and all of these belongings and that you can just live like the world and desire the things of the world, that you can name it and claim it, that health, wealth, prosperity, all this garbage that's being taught in churches. That's all teachings of Jezebel. And so many today cling on to that, like many were in Thyatira, clinging on to that message. Why? Because a lot of people, I think, do desire to have a relationship with Christ, but on the other hand, they don't want to let go of this. Right? They, in, in relationship to Christ, they also want to have a relationship to all of their heart's sinful desires, which oftentimes sur- surround what? Or center around what? Idolatry and sexual immorality, right? That's what most sins come down to, right? Idolatry, sexual immorality. Today, sexual immorality abounds in our country, doesn't it? What is the mantra of so many women in our country today? My body, my choice, right? Today, teaching everywhere goes on that sexual promiscuity is acceptable. Not only acceptable, though, preferable, good, something that young folks ought to seek after. I mean, they hand out contraception in school like it's nothing, like it's bubblegum, like it's water. Encouraging sexual immorality. We've had abortion on demand for, for decades now. And many churches don't speak up against it. They don't teach against it. They're silent on it. They, even, in fact, many lend support to those movements. Why? Because they want to appear not judgmental. Right? They, they want to appear as if they're the loving ones who care for the needy and the outcast. Right? They want to gain followers, amass popularity. But what does Christ call that type of teaching? The doctrines of Satan. The deep things of Satan in verse 24. These are satanic teachings and practices. You see that Jezebel in Thyatira was was telling the saints there that she had amassed some higher knowledge. That she had gained some higher knowledge that the elders had, even more so than the elders had, who were simply looking to the Word of God. 
Right? She, had, she had gained some sort of higher knowledge. And so she's telling them, don't worry. to do with it whatever you please. And don't we have people like that today as well who feel as if they have attained some higher knowledge than the church has for 2,000 years? Who say, scholars, teachers, and pastors today, no, they got that wrong all those years. That's not really what's being said. Their knowledge. But what do the Scriptures teach? What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Brothers and sisters, sexual intimacy is meant for marriage alone. And if people actually practice that, think about all the problems that would be solved in the world. Instead of killing unborn children in the womb because you're not ready to have a baby, how about not engaging in the practices that produce a child? This is why sexual intimacy is confined to the marriage. God graciously gave us this Marriage covenant for this reason. This is one of the purposes He gave us marriage. So, because He knew we would devolve into all sorts of filthiness and immorality and uncleanliness. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. Right? He gave us marriage, brothers and sisters, so that we wouldn't devolve into sexual immorality, but rather that as a church we would remain pure. In this world, and sadly enough, many Christians in this world likewise view marriage as a burden or a hindrance to their enjoyment, when what we ought to all see it as is a great and beautiful blessing that He has given not only to the church, but to the world. Right? Marriage is something He has given to all people. But for those in Thyatira who are engaging in the sexual immorality, what does Christ say to them in verse 21? I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. He says, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time. She didn't. But do we not see how merciful God is even to Jezebel and her followers? That He gives opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance, that as she is in the church, Jezebel and her followers are still hearing the Gospel proclaimed over and over again. They are given chance to see their sin and their need for the Savior. But brothers and sisters, those chances for all people will at one time run out. They will end. Today, for those of you here today, or maybe those who, who may listen to this in the future, if you are engaged in sexual immorality, if you have had an abortion or continue to have abortions, He gives to you opportunity to repent. 
Right? Christ offers forgiveness for those sins. Right? Christ died for those sins upon the cross for His people. But you must recognize your sinfulness. You must repent. You must flee to Christ and trust in Christ and He alone. For He will heal your broken heart and He will set the captive free. But if you stubbornly refuse and do not repent, what does He say in verses 22 and 23? Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each according to your works. May this be a warning to all here today who engage in these practices. Your unrepentant deeds will not go unpunished and you will receive the just reward which is death and eternal hellfire. Right? God will not be mocked. So persist in your sin if you desire. Right? But you will receive the reward for your sin. Just as God will judge Jezebel and her followers, He will judge every one of you for your unrepentant sin. And the God who has eyes like flames of fire will see into your hearts and into your minds. And I know that this is hard for the world to believe and accept. What are you saying? That Jesus just doesn't love everyone the way that they are? No, He doesn't. You cannot use the excuse, I was born this way. He will judge sin. And He calls upon His church this very day to judge the sin that occurs within it and to cast it out. For He has set His church apart, not to licentiousness, but to holiness and purity. This type of understanding, brothers and sisters, this biblical understanding won't make you many friends. But to those who trust in the Lord, you already have the greatest friend of all. And that great friend offers you these promises found starting in verse 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an odd of, a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give Him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This leads us to point number three, which is our final point, which is Christ's conquerors. Christ's conquerors. The church in Thyatira was economically frail. They were being pressured to engage in these pagan feasts where they were to eat food sacrificed to idols and engage in sexual immorality. And because they refused, life was difficult for them. Life was hard. They even, as some of the other churches that we've seen thus far, could suffer even greater punishment than just economic disaster. Right? As we said before, to refuse to participate in worshipping the local gods would subject you to be turned over to the Roman authorities where you then would be put to death if you demonstrated allegiance to Christ and not to Caesar. And so, Christ here in these last verses exhorts them to hold fast. And what I want us to see is He promises them two things. He promises them 
Two things, right? In verse 26, the one who conquers and keeps my word until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. What we need to see is that this is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2. If you'd like to, turn with me there. Psalm 2 and verses 7 through 9. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Jesus quotes this text which says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Here verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here Christ promises what then to the church? He promises to the church all who hold fast to His name and to the bitter end a share in His victory. He's promising them a share in His victory. A place with Him at His second appearing. As the world strives against Christ, as the world persecutes His people, ultimately, victory belongs to the Lord and a share in His rule belongs to the church. Right? Yes, right now, we must share in the persecution and the reproaches of Christ. We must deal with slander and hatred and ridicule from the world because of Christ and the Gospel. But the final victory, Christ says, is ours. And so He says, hold fast, brothers and sisters. The time is coming when the great reversal will happen. So He promises them a share in ruling and judging the nations with Him when He returns. Secondly, what does He promise? He promises to them the morning star. What is the morning star? Look at Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16 with me. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Who then is the morning star? It is Christ. What then is Christ promising to His church? Himself. Christ is promising to His church Himself. And as you sit here today, brothers and sisters, I ask, is there any greater reward than Christ? Is there any greater reward than Christ? Stack up everything that this world loves. Combine it all. And it doesn't hold a candle to Christ. Right? What this world offers you is temporal. What Christ offers you is eternal. He offers unto you Himself and all of the benefits that flow through that blessed union with Him. Right? He offers you love and peace and patience and forgiveness and joy and goodness and self-control and eternal life. All which come through faith in Christ. 
And this, brothers and sisters, we can do nothing to earn, but is graciously bestowed upon us. Because Christ shed His blood on Calvary's cross for us. And so I want you to take note of this. I want you to see this as we draw to a close in this morning. At the end of each letter, as we've been reading thus far, what is constantly the, the thing being put before the saints as the greatest motivation for them to persevere until the end? It's fellowship with Christ. It's fellowship with Christ, which tells us what? There is nothing greater that you and I ought to desire than fellowship with Christ. That we have to long for nothing on this earth more than we long for Christ. Can that be said of you? That you happily forsake all for Christ. That daily you are putting to death sin and you are seeking a more intimate fellowship with Christ as you await and anticipate eternity with the Lord. Is that your heart's desire? Is that the basis for every decision that you make in this world? Is this what you look forward to every single day of your life? The return of the morning star? If not, repent. Repent. For the light who is Christ has already come into the world. And when He comes again, He will come to to blot out all those who live in darkness. But for you, if you are a believer, the one who has been given ears to hear, know that if Christ saved you, you have already been transferred from the domain of darkness into that kingdom of light. And so I exhort you all here today then, live as children of the light. Live as those who have been redeemed by He who is the light. Live as those who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ from all sin. And know that when He returns, you will experience life in that light with Christ in all of its fullness forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You both comfort and rebuke Your church as this is so necessary for us, Lord, that we would not grow complacent or compromised, Lord, but that we would stay spiritually awake and alert, Lord, that we would not look to some higher knowledge other than what You have provided for us in the Scriptures. We ask, Lord, for the humility to simply trust in Christ and His Word, to not think that we are smarter or wiser than Almighty God Himself. Lord, we pray that You would continue to cause us to hold fast into the bitter end so that, Father, no matter what happens in this world, we might know that we are Your people and that we are those who will rule with You and judge the nations when Christ, the morning star Himself, returns. And so, Father, we come before You this morning asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.